for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. So today we're going to talk about a very hot topic in health and medicine and wellness, which is psychedelics. And today's guest is Lynn Marie Morsky, who is one of the people doing the most work to bring psychedelics safely and responsibly and respectfully and equitably into the medical mainstream. So it's a long conversation. We get into a lot. She's an amazing person with a lot of energy, brilliant, committed, uh, incredible track record of what she's done already in her career. And I think you're going to really enjoy meeting her and finding out about some of these plant substances and some synthetic substances that have huge potential for healing on all sorts of levels. So without further ado, Lynn Marie Morsky, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this chat. I am too. I've been um, waiting for this for actually several months since I discovered your podcast which is all about um, a kind of medicine that is becoming more and more popular, that is the stigmas are, are falling away, and we're starting to learn more about it, which is, I guess you could say, psychedelic medicine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad everybody's starting to learn more about it. That is something that we need on a very global scale to overcome the stigma of years of uh, prohibition so that we can get these medicines mm -hmm. to people who need them. Right. So before we get into that, I'd love to learn a little bit about you. And, you know, I've been following your podcast. I've probably listened to 40 episodes, which is kind of a record for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm honored. I, I've actually, this is no lie. I've listened to more of yours than mine. <laughs> very, very flattered. Thank you. <laughs> um, and you have, you have kind of this, this sort of very impressive backstory that made me think that maybe you were in your 80s or 90s to have done all those things. So. <laughs> That's funny. I um uh yeah, so my very basic backstory is um I was born in the Midwest, friend of a very conservative family, did not do any alcohol, drugs, psychedelics, nothing like that growing up, super conservative. Um went did I went and did, let's see, my undergrad was in video, my grad school was in like multimedia, then I went to medical school, then I did residency and fellowship. Both of those were in like primary care. I was still not in like psychiatry. Wait, then you, then you went, you went from video to medical school. Yes. I feel video, like there's just, I feel like there's a story in there somewhere. There are many. Yeah. Vid, no, I was a video major. And then in grad school, I did half of a master's in interactive multimedia because I was a multimedia designer. I was like working during the day as a multimedia designer, figured I'd get a degree, kind of addicted to school. Halfway through, realized I was tired of staring at a screen. I thought maybe talking to people would be more interesting. And um, so I went to medical school. Well, actually, I went back because I didn't have any like undergraduate credits that were medical related. So I went back, did pre-med, then got into medical school, then did residency in family medicine, fellowship in sports medicine, decided medicine was not for me. But I was still working at the Veterans Administration, but in not like the traditional medical role where you see somebody every 15 minutes and it's just kind of like a mill of patients based on, you know, the American way that the system is set up. Uh, I was at the VA doing compensation and pension, which is veterans would come at the end of their service. They would get an exam by me. I would report all the things that they'd gotten, you know, injuries or whatever from the service, and then they would get their benefits. And I did that for nine years. But during that period of time, I mean, still, that wasn't my calling. That was clearly not my calling. I mean, maybe that's somebody's calling, but it was not mine. And so then I went to law school because law <laughs> was always fascinating <laughs> and uh, loved law school. Law school was awesome. But uh, I knew I didn't want to practice law. I just wanted to do something that combined the two degrees. And then afterward, I worked in politics for a little bit. I taught law for a while. 
I wrote a book on quitting things that weren't working for you, which is my whole life, which just, as you can see, just, oh, this wasn't working. Let's try this. Um, but this whole time, um, you know, I, when I was working for the VA, I was a department of defense employee. And so we had, you know, we lived under the threat of being drug tested uh, at any time, you know, um, just like anybody else in the military. And I'm still at this point, you know, I'm, I'm 35. I'd never even tried cannabis. And uh, so somebody moved in next to me and said, oh, do you want, you know, do you want to have some, I don't know, he's vaping something or whatever. And I was like, oh, I can't, I could get drug tested. And he's like, how long have you worked for the VA? And I was like, oh, like four years. And he's like, how many times did they drug test you? And I said, zero. And they said, you're going to, you know, <laughs> maybe they're not going to. And I was like, all right, you know, like, and, you know, cannabis wasn't necessarily my jam at the time, but it did open me up to like being slightly less afraid of trying things. Was, so so th that ex was that experience kind of getting over some of the the conditioning of your childhood? Was it like this is like a moment? You think, but no, because it was literally just like I, I would. I was only afraid of drug testing, really. You know, it wasn't like I was conditioned. Oh well, my dad was very much a don't do drugs person, but um, I mean, it, it didn't have any big significance because nothing happened. Like I tried the cannabis and nothing like it didn't really do anything so uh -huh. it wasn't it wasn't like oh i got high and it was amazing it just that wasn't it but then i went to burning man the next month and somebody gave me lsd and that was significantly more impactful um but it, in there i had like a therapeutic realization that night and i did not know that psychedelic science was a thing this is 2013 and i was like wow like that was a really useful realization i had during this night on lsd didn't share it with anybody didn't think this was a thing and then I, you know, from there I opened up a little bit and I would do psilocybin every once in a while or LSD every once in a while. Same thing. Always have some realization. I was like, wow, these very useful insights I get. And then it wasn't until 2017 when uh, Tim Ferriss had somebody, I think from maps on uh, one of his podcasts. And I was like, oh, this is a whole field of study. Like this is huh. not isolated incidents to me. And that's essentially what changed my entire course of things. I did ayahuasca in 2018. And at that point I'm still at the VA and I'm going into work every day seeing patients that have PTS, uh, post-traumatic stress, TBI, depression, anxiety, trauma out the wazoo, you know, they've been in war and I can't tell them about ayahuasca, right? I can't tell them about any psychedelic. I can't tell them I've done it. I can't recommend it to them. And, you know, as physicians, our oath is first, do no harm. And at some point I was doing, or I felt I was doing a lot of harm by omission when you know mm -hmm. something could help people and you're not telling them. So in 2019, I up and quit. I had no backup job whatsoever, but I was like, this is out of alignment. I need to quit and I need to make it like my life's mission to spread this word to other clinicians. I mean, I didn't spread it to patients, but clinicians tend to listen to other clinicians, right? Doctors will listen to other doctors. And if you educate one doctor, that person might see a hundred patients a week. And instead of giving antidepressants to all of them, they could maybe recommend, hey, ketamine might work. You know, ketamine's available right now. And so I was like, I see that these medicines are going to become FDA approved. What if no doctors know about them? They're still not going to prescribe them and patients are still going to get the same ineffective therapy. You're not, so, you're not going to get, uh, you know, cheerleaders coming with, with lunches and. You mean drug reps? Yes. That's, I, I'm, did I say I meant drug reps? Yes, yes, yes. And I will not disparage drug reps. Uh, they are, you know, they serve a very important purpose because after medical school, we don't, have a formalized way of learning about new things that come out on the market. You know, like that's just not like, unless somebody shows up to your office and tells you about them, we might not know. And that's the issue with psychedelics because right now ketamine is generic. Nobody is paying 
outside of Johnson and Johnson, who now has esketamine, uh, Spravato, but nobody's paying somebody to go office to office to tell primary care doctors, hey, generic ketamine that is, you know, a dollar a bottle could do much better for your patients. And that's what I formed the Psychedelic Medicine Association to do. Um, and so uh, to back one step up, when I first left the VA, I started the Plant Medicine Podcast, which is what you were referring to as a way I, I wanted it to educate clinicians, but then I realized that's not how doctors or therapists learn necessarily about things. They don't have 45 minutes to sit down and listen to a podcast. They want to get snippets in their email that they can easily digest. So um, I keep doing the podcast, but then I founded the Psychedelic Medicine Association to formally educate clinicians so that they had the full range of options and they would start having these conversations and feel comfortable having these conversations so that when more of these medicines become available, they're ready and feel good, um, like they're educated enough to discuss them with their patients. Mm. So there's so many little moments there that I wanted to kind of like dive into, but specifically, let's, I'm going to stay on topic. Um, like you said, you you felt like you were doing harm by omission. Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned Burning Man, you'd mentioned doing a few things. Like what? Where did it? Where did it flip over for you from anecdotal to there is overwhelming evidence that this is something that an evidence based physician should be sharing with the, with with their patients. When Tim Ferriss's podcast came out, when that's when I knew oh, this is a, like, you don't, I keep telling people, they, you know, people often disparage doctors. Oh, they're keeping their head in the sand. I was like, guys, doctors cannot go home and Google something they've never heard of. Like, if you've (laughs) never heard of psychedelic medicine, you can't go home and Google psychedelics for depression. That's not like, you can't, you know, like, so I was, I was at that place. I wasn't sitting there Googling psychedelics, helping anxiety. I, or I wasn't on PubMed, which is where you look for, you know, evidence. I wasn't Googling psychedelics in PubMed because I didn't know that was a field that existed. It wasn't until that, that episode came out that I was like, oh, let me follow maps. Let me open, you know, like mm-hmm. start listening to the research, following these people. So, you know, that, that's when everything changed. Gotcha. So one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is that you insist on context, that there are, there, there are plenty of people in this, in this neck of the woods who are evangelists, who are extremely convinced that their, their perspective is completely right. And I just, I see you as just like always increasing the context, always increasing the balance so that you're, you're giving people the best information we have. Can you talk a little bit about sort of like, like first there's like, okay, I did ayahuasca, I did LSD at Burning Man. There's not necessarily any political, social, racial, economic concerns that 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 go along with that experience and yet you are continually putting plant medicine into into all sorts of of other contexts of justice of fairness of equity of healing can you kind of talk about your evolution yes and i appreciate you for saying that i don't necessarily think about uh, are working that way, but I'm glad that you have appreciated that we have really tried to bring up, you know, we've done episodes, psychedelics and the LGBTQIA2 spirit community, psychedelics and communities of color. Um, because I, uh, luckily, you know, there are a lot of kind of, you know, mostly good intention watchdogs in the psychedelic field, and they will call out when things are being overlooked. And so I distinctly remember I had put up a post on Instagram saying, you know, from my very privileged existence, you know, middle-class white female, I, you know, I said, and, and physician, I said, go to your doctor, tell them everything you're doing. They should know every substance you're on. Right. And what I'm thinking of is just 
preventing, you know, um, interactions with antidepressants, that kind of thing, you know? And somebody commented, yeah, that's fine for you, but there are people who, if they admitted to using an illegal substance, they could lose their benefit. Hmm. You know, they, they might get turned in by their doctor and lose their children, you know? And I was like, wow, thank you for bringing that to my attention. Like that totally kind of smacked me in the face. And also the work by Dr. Carl Hart, you know, the first time I heard him talk about psychedelic exceptionalism at Horizons in 2019, I was like, wow, this is information. Again, you know, I had, it wasn't even in my sphere, sphere of knowledge. It's once you hear it, you can't unhear those things. Mm. You can't, can, you can, know. You, can you yeah. briefly describe what that is? Cause I don't, I'm not sure that many of my listeners will be familiar with his work. Absolutely. So, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing Dr. Hart's work. Uh, please check out his books, many books. I think his most used recent one is called Drug Use for Grownups. Um, but he talks about psychedelic exceptionalism, which is essentially, you know, we have the drug war, which was not ever a war on drugs. It was a war on communities of color. And, you know, he very succinctly points that out when you like look at the difference between the penalties for cocaine, which, you know, the upper class white people are doing versus crack, you know, like it was like five times the sentence for crack, which was in the uh, lower socioeconomic status communities. And he points out that, you know, when we keep talking about psychedelics, like there's not drugs, like they're better than heroin, they're better than crack or they're better than meth, you know, like here's this, you know, they're all drugs. I mean, caffeine is a drug, uh, alcohol is a drug, right? But we like specifically put psychedelics in this one area and kind of lift them up. And, and if we do that and continue to demonize the others, that's essentially psychedelic exceptionalism. It's like the drugs that people can, you know, um, generally white people with means can afford, you know, psychedelic therapy at this point is not cheap, right? So those of us who can go and spend all this money to go to an ayahuasca retreat and do quote unquote plant medicine, you know, that's okay. But the person who is still struggling, they, they may um, like struggling mentally or with whatever else, and they're turning to something that they have available to them, which might be, you know, heroin or cracker or meth or one of these other things, then like that's still continuing a divide that's still continuing that war on communities of color that's putting our you know our in the psychedelic community our means of healing ourselves above other people's means of of finding some peace in their life you know and you know dr hart will say oh i you know i'll do heroin this and that or you know i mean whatever his i think it was heroin that he mentioned you know and it's about using it in a certain way and not abusing it or taking it with context set and setting all the things you know but essentially you know, as I ramble on, but the the point is we have to take care to not continue to stratify things in those with means versus those without means. And the psychedelics that those with means can, can access our plant medicine are better than others. And there are still other bad drugs. Like that's what I want to, um, you know, I was mentioning to you before we started, I'm changing the name of the plant medicine podcast to the psychedelic medicine podcast because I don't want to at all be part of that exceptionalism. Like the, the name was essentially plant medicine podcast. Cause I wanted to include cannabis um, and, you know, to call it a psychedelic mm-hmm. medicine podcast initially, that wouldn't have made as much sense, but now I definitely focus on psychedelics and I, and I don't want to be part of, you know, I, I just saw Jada Pinkett Smith and they did this awesome thing, but they continue like on, on psychedelics and they had these experts on and it was great, but they continue to continue, continue to call it plant medicine the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that, I think continues to put it in this like woo woo place you know, these are, they're all schedule one drugs. I think actually heroin might be a schedule two drug, you know, like these are even scheduled higher in the DEAs, which are dangerous drugs classification, which we all know is bogus, but like, it's not, 
we want to make sure that we're not stratifying things any further and continuing this war on communities of color. Right. Okay. But then that's interesting. And I definitely, you know, for, for the listeners, we're going to get into like the facts on the ground about psychedelics and how they can be part of, of, of a healing process. Um, I kind of explore this a little bit more because I've like a lot of my, the interviews I listened to kind of smacked me on your podcast kind of smacked me upside the face. So I have participated in, you know, certain of these events where, you know, from my perspective, I was like honoring the indigenous people whose culture I was appropriating, right? Like, you know, this is, this is plant medicine because it's ancient and the plants spoke to these people. And, and yet, I'm, you know, I'm doing it in the comfort of my home thousands of miles away from where the plant grew. And, and yet at the same time, like, you know, sound like you at LSD at Burning Man, I had some very profound healing experiences and, and I found myself afterwards trying to, you know, like, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? You know, how, how can, um, you know, there, there was a way in which the story of the plant and its relationship to these indigenous people that I see myself as an advocate for was actually playing into a very egotistical narrative that I wasn't aware of. I am confused by the question. I don't, yeah, I don't think there was one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you pause. I'm like, I don't yeah. know what to say. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was hoping, I was hoping you were going to help me. <laughs> um, I guess, I guess just, um, well, let's, I mean, you've had, you've had guests on who have, have focused on um, how we can advocate for the people, for the indigenous cultures and people without just expropriate. Like I, I kind of felt like I was expropriating the same way I'd go to Mexico and come back with beads or a hat or something that, that I was, you know, while this stuff was incredibly helpful for me, it was also a form of, of appropriation without recompense. And I wonder if you could help me think about that. Sure. I, well, I am by no means the authority on that. I do know who is. I would say chakruna.net. They really specialize in that and they have this big indigenous reciprocity initiative, I believe it is called, the IRI. And, you know, I'd head on over there. They, you know, sign up for their newsletters. They're the ones who are, you know, and I see a lot of companies that are even in the space. Luckily, they are, um, they've got some byline in their, you know, finance sheet where 10%, you know, Social responsibility is a big thing these days. And in the psychedelic world, I, I see a lot of the companies taking their social responsibility funds and sending them um, towards indigenous, uh, I don't, you, whoever has set up funds for indigenous healers, somehow for these to go back, you know. So if you're an individual person, maybe check out the Chakruna series on indigenous, indigenous reciprocity. I would say, you know, first, base, very basic, you acknowledged it. And you acknowledge that this has a, a lineage and tradition and that you showed gratitude for the people who came before you. And um, I think, you know, at a very basic level, continuing to respect it, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> these, again, I don't want to say recreational versus non-recreational. I don't want stratification, but I still see a lot of people, you know, I hear about, oh, I ordered ayahuasca in the mail and I'm going to do it home by myself. Like that, anything that leads to a bad event is both hurting our industry, preventing other people from possibly healing in the future, and I would say not necessarily honoring the ancestors and the way they would want these things to be done. Like they set up traditions because that's the way they were safest. And 
you know, granted, like we on in Western, we can throw more safety on top of it, trauma informed healing and, and consent and all these things that may not have been specific, like specifically outlined in their in their trainings. But they're the ones who know how to work with this medicine. And so for us to take it way out of context, like if you're going to do it in your home, whatever, I mean, I've done ayahuasca outside of, let's say, super, you know, I've done it in the jungles of Colombia and I've done it outside of the jungles of Colombia. But still, when I do it outside of the jungles of Colombia, I'm doing it with somebody trained in the Shipibo tradition, you know, um, so that that lineage still comes through and I still get to respect and do the medicine in the way that I believe the, you know, the original finders and and harbingers of these medicines would want it done but you know on past that past that kind of respect i would say you know if you're looking to donate every year look at an indigenous reciprocity Hmm. um some kind of fund you know i'd say like chakruna.net is a great resource for that and there are another of um, a number of other kind of adjacent type things that you can donate to to continue to honor those people Hmm. So you talked about honoring the ancestors and what suddenly came up for me is how do you talk to MDs about a drug regimen that honors the ancestors? <laughs> you know, when it's so different from the way we think about, you know, pharmaceutical quality and, uh, and protocol. Yeah. Million dollar. Well, there are like many million dollar questions in getting this into our Western medical society. And that is one of them. Um, so we just ran the Santa symposium, sauna symposium, um, first ever, psychedelic specific conference that psych conference that psych conference was putting on for clinicians. So there's a thousand clinicians on these calls and I was on the steering committee and we're like, you know, how do we bring in the indigenous? And you know, you just do, you just mention it, but here's the thing. There are indigenous traditions for ayahuasca, ibogaine, psilocybin. And I, from the psychedelic psychedelics, I think that's about it. I may be, Oh, sorry. Peyote mescaline. Um, but look at the medicines that we're using now. Ketamine does not have an indigenous tradition, so I don't have to sell them, you know, can, you know, to tell them ketamine is a thing. I don't have to explain that. MDMA does not have an indigenous tradition. Um, LSD does not 5-MeO-DMT. A lot of people think it has an indigenous tradition. It does not. Um, so, uh, you know, about half have a tradition. So it's, 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 a, it's kind of like a combo conversation because we're telling them on one side, here's something completely synthetic created in the lab, MDMA, for example, um, you, you just do really good therapy and we'll tell you how to do the therapy. And that therapy may borrow from some indigenous practices of sitting with people, um, but there's no MDMA tradition. And then on the other hand, we have these other medicines and the, the medicines that have the indigenous traditions outside of psilocybin are really, you're going to have to, we're going to have to do some work. Like when ayahuasca or ibogaine becomes closer to FDA approved, I mean, that they're significantly further away, not impossible. Luckily, people are working on it. But you're right, that's going to be a whole different conversation. So I think, you know, now that we've got psilocybin approaching phase three trials, and that does have a tradition, but um, it's not necessarily a tradition that's nece- that's being carried out in these trials. Um, it's It's a conversation to start having. But you're right, it's with clinicians, we can't I don't want to overwhelm them with background of the medicines that are coming. I think if we inform them little by little, a little buy in here, a little buy in here, it's kind of like with cannabis, right? If we could get somebody turned on to CBD, oh, they're okay with CBD. That is a form of cannabis. Maybe I can get them turned them on to THC, right? And then little by little, um, I don't insist that, you know, they get flooded with this information. Just we kind of keep it in the background as mentions here and there so that they're familiar with the terminology. And then when these, when ayahuasca and ibogaine, for example, become 
you know, closer to FDA approved, hopefully this will not be such a, a kind of a shocking conversation to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other difference that I can see is that, you know, clinical medicine is always focused on the individual, right? How, how that's, the, that's the locus of, of what I'm trying to, to fix. As I come from a public health background, which is looking more broadly, and I would argue that the indigenous traditions of psychedelics are looking at a communal level or a planetary level. Um, how, do, how do you talk to physicians? Like, there's ways in which we can just sort of steal all this stuff and use it for shits and giggles, right? And there's ways in which it hopefully it could transform and elevate our society to become more ego, ecocentric and less egocentric. Um, how do you think about the, you know, that merger so it doesn't become, you know, us just instrumentalizing these, these gifts? I think we started like, you know, within the Psychedelic Medicine Association, our very first monthly webinar, we talked about increasing access to ketamine therapy, which again, ketamine is not something that has an indigenous tradition with it. However, one of the people who was discussing and by increasing access, we were talking about how ketamine is way too expensive right now. How can we get this available to more people before it gets covered by insurance? Because outside of the Johnson and Johnson project, it is not generally covered by insurance. And one of our panelists, she hosts group ceremony. And so I think that is a good way, you know, talking about uh, accessibility to get buy-in from clinicians as to, you know, we've heard of group therapy. We know that's (laughs) a thing that exists, right? And it may be a thing that exists one, because of cost, because it's more cost-effective to group therapy for many, but also, you know, things like AA and all these other recovery groups, they have a group component, a community component. There's a reason these aren't done one-on-one. And so it's not that the concept is completely unfamiliar to clinicians. I think it's just going to be, have to be another part of the education, which is, you know, with a lot of the psilocybin work that Imperial has done and, and Dr. Roz Watts with how important that the community aspect was for integration. I think it's just part of, you know, if we continue to talk about integration, you know, that's a whole new conversation for physicians to have. If we mention community is important for this, and then we mention, hey, group settings are cost effective, and sometimes they have added benefits. I just think like with everything else, it's trickling in, taking the avenues where we're already familiar. We already know what group therapy is. Okay, well, group, now we are doing group therapy, but we've added ketamine, right? Like, it's not like we're totally blasting the mold of what they know is possible in the medical world. Like, there are little inroads. And so just taking those inroads and, and working with what people are already familiar with and just showing them there's a little additions here that we can make in the psychedelic realm and get some big benefits. Mm-hmm. Great. Gotcha. So let's, let's, let's dive into some of the, those benefits. Cause I know, you know, when I first started hearing about it, like LSD was what bad people did to have trips and they're still messed up. And, you know, you could go crazy in the jungle and it took, you know, it took a lot of tenderizing to get me to open my mind and heart. And, and, and frankly, it was, it was not from spiritual people that it, that it got through to me. It was from, you know, doctors, from people in maps, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Is that right? Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, 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 the silent P gets me every time. Yes. Um, Yeah. No. And I think I think a lot of people are like you, like they are more on the conservative side. And so until they hear that there's science behind it, then it's it's a harder sell. So I don't think you're alone. Right. So what what would you see? You know, so just for for the uninitiated, let's you know, let's let's pick a substance, 
pick a pick a psychedelic medicine. What do you think is particularly interesting right now in terms of um, clinical uses and um, and and evidence for it? We'll pick psilocybin because then nobody can say I didn't pick a classical psychedelic because ketamine and MDMA are not classical psychedelics, right? So okay, so what is psilocybin? The, Where does it come? That is for the super nerds out there. Uh, psilocybin is uh, psilocybin mushrooms. So we're talking about the ingredient from magic mushroom. It has been shown it is heading into phase three trials for depression. It has been shown to help with end of life anxiety. Uh, one of my favorite studies, maybe my favorite favorite study, is the psilocybin for tobacco cessation by Dr. Matthew Johnson at Johns Hopkins. It showed something like 60%, I, I believe it was 60% at one year, were abstinent from smoking after two sessions of psilocybin and cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. Like no patch, no um, Wellbutrin or whatever other things do, no vaping. Like this was, they did psilocybin twice and did some cognitive behavioral therapy and at 60% at a year. Those are not numbers I've ever seen in smoking. Um, and now psilocybin is being investigated for uh, headaches, um, chronic pain, um, psilocybin has DMT in it, just like ayahuasca does. And they're finding that DMT has like neurogenesis properties, which is like regrowing or growing new, um, neural cells. So, you know, somebody's investigating DMT for stroke patients. So, you know, psilocybin has DMT in it. So I think psilocybin will also have some interesting effects in that realm. So it's currently my favorite because it's just this wide range. They're investigating for it, for eating disorders, like there's a wide range of things that come up both when you're doing it with therapy, but also just on a physiologic level, it appears to have these interesting effects. So um, mm -hmm. hopefully that's a good example of, uh -huh. <laughs> of the benefits. Great. I remember listening to uh, Michael Pollan talking about that, uh, the smoking, the t smoking cessation study where says they were interviewing the people about like, why'd you stop smoking? And they would say like things like, I think he called them like duh moments. Like, Oh, I realized it wasn't good. It was like messing up my lungs. It's like, and and you didn't know that before. Like that was news to you, but so, but somehow the truth was able to penetrate the veil some more. What do you yeah, think? I, what do you what do you think? It's what do you think is about psilocybin? Like, what's your what's what's your sense? I don't know. I've never had a cigarette in my life. It's really hard for me to, to determine that one. But I'm you know what I do know from other journeys I've done is that suddenly, like I have a greater respect for nature. And kind of the interconnectedness of things and, and respect for things. And so maybe if you weren't respecting your own physiology and your own lungs, you know, mm. um, or, or your health or, you know, say you're part of a family and you're smoking and you've got kids and you think like, oh, well, my lungs go out and then my kids don't have a parent. Like maybe just it's that, you know, sense of connection. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of times they say that the mystical experience leads to the most change, but I cannot tell you which part of the mystical experience, mystical experience it is that, that necessarily leads to it. But I do know that a lot of people I know who do psychedelics, for example, they drink a lot less. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting. It, I think it just brings things to your consciousness and to your awareness that make you want to take better care of yourself in many different ways. And I can't pinpoint what it is, but those are, you know, kind of my guesses is that, like, it makes me want, you know, I'll do a journey and then I'll be like, I just want to eat fruit for a week. I'm not a big fruit eater regularly, but it's like, I want to be full of nature, you know? And, and I don't know if maybe they're thinking like, wow, why have I been poisoning myself this whole time? I should breathe, you know, mother nature's air and, and be healthy. I don't, 
that's my guess. I, you know, not a great fortune teller with that, but perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, my, my reading about it is around sort of really dampening down default mode network and, and parts of the brain that are constantly telling the story of ourselves. And I don't know if it's legal for me to have done psilocybin. So, but I will say that if I had done it, the experience I would have had would have been one in which like nothing was more important than anything else. <laughs> like, we'll like really, say you did psilocybin in Amsterdam where truffles are legal. Okay, sure. I saw and, you there. That's, yep, where, and, that's definitely where it happened. Okay, and then continue. I imagined I was, then I imagined I was in my backyard <laughs> think, thinking, thinking I was going to walk around and appreciate the beautiful zinnias in bloom and finding myself drawn to the, the mottled speckled leaves and the dirt and, and realizing like, like sensing that, that there's this, um, brain, um, um, this is hard. There, there's a, there's a, there's a there's a program that's constantly running in my in my brain that's saying what's in it for me is that is that good is that bad and it's probably you know it seems like a very useful survival thing yeah. most of the time and it was turned so far down that nothing was privileged over anything else the grass and the trees and me it was we were, it was all on equal footing and it it felt you know in to this day <laughs> Like I, I can't always, I can't get there, like in my sort of normal consciousness. But knowing that there's a there there makes a difference. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I like how well you put how that would have gone had you done it. Um, that's my guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's your guess. That was very cute. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I've had people, you know, I, one of clinicians' biggest concerns is are these addictive. And we keep telling them they're, they're not addictive. They're, like they, they're anti-addictive, right? Like they actually can help you get rid of your addictions. And then if you take too much of it, they just stop working. But literally when you tell them something like that, they're like, but wouldn't you want to be in that state every day? And like, I mean, in theory, but it would stop working. And you also need to like be productive at some point. And also, I mean, there are other ways you can get there. Um, but yes, like in that state, it is glorious, right? Like, especially the, the like for, had I done it, the I think the thing I would have gotten the most out of was that um, I'm just kidding. I totally have done it. But um, <laughs> I'm very open about that. But uh, is that there, there's a connection, right? We live in the U.S. Everything is polarized. And when I do that, I feel like, oh, man, like we're all connected. We should stop. You know, like, I, I, you know, I feel less anger toward the quote unquote other side, you know, or mm. whatever, that kind of thing. And wouldn't I love to live in that state and not live in the state that's, that's super polarized? That would be great. But yeah, I think that's, that's a huge benefit of these, especially in communal healing. Like one of my favorite studies that was done. And this is just, you know, an intro study. And, you know, a lot of people got kind of up in arms, like this is not going to solve the world's problems. Yes, but this is an intro study uh, is, is the study that was done with the Israelis and Palestinians drinking ayahuasca together. Like, look up that paper or listen to that episode of my podcast. It's just incredible that, you know, that let's say from one side, you know, an Israeli soldier who never necessarily thought twice about, you know, putting himself in the shoes of the people he was going to, you know, pull out of Palestine or whatever his story was, you know, he's like banging down somebody's door. And the thought of listening to Arabic music was terrible, whatever. There's an Arab, like an Arabic woman is singing in Arabic during the ayahuasca circle. And he's like, this is beautiful. And then he could like, (laughs) 
put himself in their shoes. Like it's, it, you know, that connection is a huge bridge to healing on a societal level. So, um, yeah, like they're, they're that default mode network tuning down and the connection tuning up have many benefits. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because, you know, when, when I was preparing for this, this conversation like months ago and there's a whole bunch of stuff I've just forgotten. And that was what, like what got me most. First of all, these two beautiful souls that you're talking to, the Israeli and the Palestinian who are working on this together. And then following up on the reports, I saw, I saw, I first saw it in, I think it was a MAPS Facebook post, and then seeing the vitriol on the the comments was like, was so bracing and hard to, to read because having a sense of like the beauty that happened there. And then people just, just reacting from their, from their worst places. A hundred percent. That's well put. That must be actually the the post that maps posted of mine that you saw. Um, But I I ended up running into, you know, when I interviewed them, Lior was in England and and, uh, Antoine was in the West Bank, I believe. And then I ran into Lior in Berlin and uh, I was like, well, that was the most commented podcast, commented on podcast we've ever done. He's like, yeah. He said, I was getting, you know, like he was getting anti-Semitic things thrown at him and he's Jewish. You know, he was the Jewish half of this research team, you know, like, I mean, it's just, tensions are so high in in so many conflicts and especially one that's been going as long as that and it's like god what i wouldn't give for the people in that comment section to sit for an ayahuasca ceremony with the people on the other side of that comment section <laughs> and then reevaluate you know afterwards like because you're absolutely like that's that's the, the you know it well put i've never seen i never put out something that was supposed to be more inspirational that caused more hate you know <laughs> and um it, a little saddening but also look you know, I'm sure that there were people who sat for ayahuasca that, that could have been those commenters before, you know, um, mm-hmm. who might have felt that strongly about either side. And then they were brought to a new understanding, you know, so it it gives me hope that hopefully as as, you know, these medicines are used more intentionally in these bridge building ways that we can reach some of those people and, and lessen those tensions. Right. And at the same time, there's I've heard people in the um, psychedelic community, and I kind of felt this way or would have after my psilocybin experience had I had one that like what I just want to do is like put it in the water in Congress. Like there's this there's this conceit that like it's just going to fix everybody's brains. We're going to stop being, you know, selfish assholes. Right. That would be the goal. Um, It's funny because I was just thinking about this today, like putting it in the water. Uh, metaphorically sounds great. I, you know, I have been in places where people are handing out microdoses and, you know, and I've sat with the consequences of that when somebody should not have been taking even a microdose, you know, they get nauseous, they, you know, it ruins their night. Like these are best done in, in set and settings that are controlled. Um, like if you had been in your backyard, you know, maybe even better had a sitter been with you in your hypothetical backyard, but like, if, well, I, my, I my, my, my hypothetical then 23 year old daughter would have been <laughs> that's beautiful even make, better you had like a family member that's great but um even better if she was trained anyway i keep digressing I, yeah. this is the lawyer in me like don't ever say a thing that could actually come back to you <laughs> don't suggest your daughter sits with you you know um anyway uh we were talking about oh yeah putting the the, the politicians yes if we could get legit uh, ayahuasca ceremonies with both sides of the aisle sitting together my goodness 
you know, like, I, I mean, I was just at an event, uh, a fundraiser where Rick Perry spoke, you know, Rick Perry, former governor of Texas, and he was ranting about the amazing benefits of psychedelic therapy. Whereas I had assumed he would only rant about things that I would not believe in, you know, um, <laughs> from his background. Right. And so like, it is very possible. This is something that thanks to veterans is getting bipartisan support, but yes, I, once it gets that support, I mean, when we decriminalize DC, not we, but decriminalize DC, decriminalize DC, uh, I was like, oh my God, please get those people in DC, some of these decriminalized substances and in a proper set and setting so that we can start this healing because yeah, um, we do want to put it in the water safely and we do want, you know, politicians to feel this sense of, I mean, especially the ones that don't seem to have a real sense of community or caring about the environment or caring about, uh, other classes that don't maybe look like them or earn like them. I would love for them to have that. But, you know, again, that's on the level of imagining the best about psychedelics, right? That's why I continue to, to specify. We'd want them in a good set and setting because we don't want them to have a bad trip and then never want to give, you know, psychedelics or healing to anybody else. Right. Right. Can, can we talk about cannabis? Can I don't, I'm not an expert. On it. <laughs> okay. I will right. try my best. Right. Well, I can find, yeah, I can find, but, um, I mean, you know, it's the more I read about it from a evidence-based perspective, the less I'm sure, right. This is like, this is one of those substances where there's more and more research uh, that's showing harms, at least that I'm seeing as showing benefit. And maybe, maybe I'm a, you know, a dupe of, of whatever f media filter I'm getting. But I keep seeing, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists talking about, like, maybe it's not good for younger people, or maybe, like, yeah, maybe there be some medical, there's some pain relief, but there's also increased um, incidences of depression, anxiety, bipolar. Like, what, what, what are you seeing? Oh, mostly. I mean, again, again, caveat, lawyer disclaimers all over the place. This is not my specialty, um, but. I actually am the medical director for a cannabis and psychedelics website. So I do have some knowledge and most of the negatives that I see, like I'm surprised to hear you say that mostly you see negatives because I generally see all the negatives coming in the same vein, which is overuse by young people is problematic. Like that actually has studies that show that there can be um, consequences. And um, perhaps just like with other things, if you had a predisposition to schizophrenia, bipolar, psychosis, one of the things, I mean, like, those those populations are being currently mostly kept out of psychedelic study because whenever you start messing with the psyche and there is already a, a fragile, you know, um, maybe genetic predisposition for something, then we're in it. We may be in more of a danger zone. So if you're seeing those kinds of things um, that are spurred on by cannabis use, it's probably cannabis overuse and in a fragile population. Like, did somebody smoke, you know, a joint one time that was of moderate strength and they suddenly had psychosis? That's not a story I ever I ever see right? It's generally really continued heavy use, or maybe they took way too many edibles. And then they, you know, because especially edibles at some point can become psychedelic, right? Like you, you can lose all, you can have all the same kind of um, most of the same kind of kind of delusions that you would have with the psychedelic. Yeah. So, if, I, if I'd had two brownies that one time, just because right? they were tasty. That, yeah, that, you could, that would have that would have messed me up good for several hours. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, those are really uncomfortable anxiety producing, you know, we know that cannabis can cause paranoia. That's well known, right? So if you've got a super high dose, it's getting psychedelic, you get paranoid. And um, so I'm going to cough. <laughs> and outside of that, you might have already had a genetic predisposition toward 
one of these conditions. Yeah, that seems to be a concern. But I'm, you know, looking at how many things CBD has been shown to be beneficial for on the medical side. I mean, there's like Epidiolex, which is, you know, now a FDA approved medicine for seizures in certain types of pediatric seizures disorders. We have Sativex. I mean, I'm thinking in, you know, I see that it's helpful for MS, spasticity, lots of areas, sleep, you know, there's, um, depending on what, you know, CBD is especially good for sleep, you know, so I think it's the same cautions that apply to psychedelics. And then also maybe this additional caution with use in, in youth, um, under age 15, they say, those, those are the big ones I see. Again, like I, that's not something that I'm mired in quite as much as psychedelics, but most of the harms. And then there's cannabis, um, cannabis use disorder, which is again, like a use disorder when they, you know, because they say cannabis itself is not addictive, but you can definitely develop a use disorder with it. And there are withdrawal symptoms and all that, that kind of thing. So, you know, that's still in the more, again, a lot of these fall into, are you using them intentionally or not? I don't want to say recreationally versus medicinally, but intentionally versus mm-hmm. not. I know good friends that said, man, I noticed I was smoking a lot more cannabis and I was just like out of habit. And then I, I was like, why am I doing this? I'm not doing this intentionally. And then they just stopped. Like, mm-hmm. and then from then on, they, if they're going to smoke cannabis, they're going to say, what is my intention with this right now? You know, cannabis is a plant, just like these psychedelics are some, you know, plants that they're, they're substances that are psychoactive plant or otherwise. And with psychedelics, we ask people to have an intention in that a set and setting and to take it intentionally and not just ignore the dose and woof some down and go party and not pay attention to your safety. Like, well, the same thing should apply to cannabis. We're not telling you to, or nobody's suggesting that it's healthy to do it all day, every day, uh, willy nilly, not paying attention to the dose, not doing it for a specific reason, you know, perhaps then disorders, you know, or, or problems are going to be more likely. Hmm. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it seems like my guess is that what I've been reading sort of coming from mainstream sources is still very heavily uh, tinged with morality. Right. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of pearl clutching. Right. And, and a desire to, to, to find the negative and to, and to highlight it and blow it out of proportion. Yeah. And I, and I like, you know, if you were to off record, you know, like they send me, here's everything I've seen. Like I would be interested to go through it and, and, you know, as anybody else diligent would to, to look at who's sponsoring this study. Is it pharma who currently a pharmaceutical company that doesn't have a cannabis product? Sure. They have every reason in the world. If they especially are making like SSRIs or something, you know, like mm-hmm. where, who is sponsoring this is like, as you said, is it, is it from a more conservative Institute, that kind of thing? Or um, yeah, it's, you're right. They're there. You know, a lot of these could be tinted morality. That's why I'm pretty proud of the psychedelic science world because it is, you know, it's seemingly not at this point, you know, if, if it's tinged with anything, it's tinged with caution, but not with morality. And so that's my hope that the cannabis space gets to that same mm-hmm. place too. Uh-huh. So if someone's listening to this and, you know, what's, what sort of medical conditions might somebody think, hey, cannabis is something that I, that I might try if I haven't tried it and, and other things aren't really working? I can't say that. That's less okay. like medical advice. So. <laughs> I uh I would advise you to listen to some of the episodes of the plant medicine podcast because um yeah because me telling okay. somebody personally that to use something when they've tried everything that I'm a doctor can't do that lawyer remember but uh <laughs> check out the plant medicine podcast episodes on cannabis for PTSD um cannabis for I don't think there's episodes necessarily about this but you know google cannabis and pain cannabis and uh muscular sclerosis Cannabis and um, chemotherapy, uh, mm. 
that's that's a big one. Um, cannabis for nausea, cannabis for chemotherapy, uh, CBD for sleep, CBD for I mean, there's a if you listen to the episodes, the very first episode of the podcast is somebody who did CBD for back pain and he avoided back surgery. Um, so lots of conditions um, generally, you know, if taken. And again, if you're going to take one of these and you're already on any medicines, because, you know, in your scenario, they tried everything. They're probably on some medicines, right? Go to a cannabis consultant. There are plenty of, you know, doctors out there, MDs, DOs that do cannabis consulting so they can look at the medicines you're on and say whether or not there will be a interaction because these medicines, some of like a CBD oil, for example, is metabolized by the liver. Well, so are the drugs that you take orally and there can be some interaction. So just make sure you check with a medical professional. If you go to your own medical professional and they say, um, I don't know anything about this, then please go seek out a cannabis consultant. Um, and if you are a person who has at the end of your rope with any of these things, um, then please see a cannabis consultant regardless, because maybe they will have some thoughts on how you may safely use um, a cannabis based product for your condition. Okay. So now I think I know how to ask you questions. So so what should somebody Google? There we go. <laughs> I can educate, not prescribe. There if, <laughs> if they are, if they are concerned about, uh, they, they, they might want to try one of these substances and they're not sure if it's legal in their, in their, where, where they live or like, do they have to travel? Are there, are there dispensations? Oh, you're talking how, about psychedelics now. We're talking, well, say, let's say cannabis. Oh, okay. like I'm, I'm in a, I'm, I'm in one of the holdout states in North Carolina. Um, you know, my kids both from Portland, Oregon. So, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> very different scene there. Very. I'm in California. Uh, very Portland-esque scene here. <laughs> I believe. Right. I mean, so is are there are there still legal issues? Let's say we're a podcast host to actually admit that he used rather than you know telling hypothetical. Like, what's what what where is the what's the legal landscape? And I know you you had a wonderful conversation with with someone. Um, say a couple months ago about, um, you know, all the legal concerns. Oh, I'm, I'm blanking our Delta on his 8 name. conversation. Oh, we haven't had a conversation with a man about cannabis legality in, in two years, but we did have somebody on talking about Delta eight and some of the legal issues there. Um, her name was Dr. Carrie Clark. Um, but right now it's, it changes by the day. Like suddenly a legislature will be like, Nope, cannabis is legal. Like, and, and, or they've changed it from, totally legal to medicinally legal or they change it from medicinally legal to recreationally mm. legal. Like my parents state just changed like out of nowhere. I think maybe at the last election, um, it's really hard to keep up. So I do not have a great resource because again, it's so fast. It doesn't even have to be at an election. Like after an election, you can generally tell like, okay, they, they'll broadcast these kind of things, but it may just be the, the city council, your city council, you might be in a completely criminalized state and your city council may have voted to decriminalize all entheogens um plant-based entheogens which will include cannabis so like uh district of columbia they decriminalize all um entheogens entheogens are uh what's the word for it it's it's another term for psychedelics basically uh, um but yeah. it's kind of like plant-based things that help you know god or, or yeah. things that help you know god kind of some i'm botching the terminology here but um so a lot of places have decriminalized natural entheogens um like detroit just decriminalized seattle just decriminalized so it's even city by city so even just looking state by state is hard to tell um so i unfortunately do not know 
I'm sure somebody online, maybe Drug Policy Alliance, maybe that's a place to look. Um, DPA, not 100% sure. It sounds like they would be uh, something against drugs, but they're actually very much against the drug war and very into uh, good education about drugs. So they may have a resource, but somebody would have to be literally on that with the, you know, daily uh-huh. um, for the. So, I mean, I hope that somewhere on the internet exists a, let me put in your city and currently are things, what is legal and illegal in that city, but that, you know, with there's 380 million people in a jillion municipalities. So I don't know that that's possible. Mm. We need a maps map. We do. We do for (laughs) cannabis, for sure. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about your podcast. Okay. Um, So the, the first thing is that the the way it's organized is, is you have like four different conversations initially about each substance. And so it's a very much choose your own adventure, yes. right? How, how, did, how did you, you know, when you first said, hey, I'm going to do a podcast, how did you first come up with that? Well, I love that you used the exact phrase that I think I used in the pilot episode because it is totally choose your own adventure. Um, well, because I, I mean, I'm looking at other podcasts in the space. And if I were, I mean, again, like I, I wanted this to be for clinicians at, at first. And I was thinking of what holes could a, doubtful clinician, a skeptical clinician, try to poke in psychedelics, right? If a patient comes to them and says, um, I was thinking of using ketamine um, for depression. What do you think? The first hole I could think is they would poke in and be like, that's going to be scary for you. And the second hole could be like, there's no research behind that. And the third hole could be like, I don't know if the person's going to do it safely. And the fourth hole could be, that's probably illegal, right? Those were kind of like the four things that I thought would be their doubts, right? And so then I thought, I'm just going to create an episode for each one of those. Hmm. And um, that will help patients because patients can go straight to the patient experience episode and listen to what it might be like to try ketamine. And then, you know, the patient or the clinician could go to the scientific research episode and find out exactly what research has been done to kind of quell that doubt. And then if they wonder, gosh, what is what what is it going to be like? What are the people who administer this? What's their training like? What are they going to do in this ceremony? That's helpful for the patient who might want to know and the, and their, their physician may also want to know that. And then they both, both probably want to know, is this legal? And like, what's the history of the legality? And so that's how I set it up because I, you know, I love many of the other psychedelic podcasts out there, but they'll like have a big name person on and they'll discuss like 70 different topics. And I might just want to know how did the ayahuasca help their depression, right? Like where in this two hour long episode, do I find that information? So that's why mm-hmm. our episodes are, you know, generally like 40 to 60 minutes and they focus just on one aspect of one medicine, basically. And hopefully that will help users navigate because say you have um, depression, you might just look for all the episodes that are focused on depression because we have like ketamine for depression, psilocybin for depression. Um, And if you instead have really been curious about psilocybin, then you can just go to all the psilocybin ones, Um, the psilocybin patient experience, scientific research, blah, blah, blah. And then you can also go to the psilocybin for depression or psilocybin for eating disorders or whatever. That's not one that exists, but there's psychedelic eating disorders. But I just want there to be lots of uh, of easy ways for you to t- dial in just the information you were looking. Beautiful. Yeah. The the other thing I wanted to say is that I love how you podcast, like the the way you um, introduce topics and the way you talk to your guests. Like I, I was listening, thinking I got to up my game a little bit. Limber is really really present, really good at this. And I'm wondering, like, how do you prepare for conversations and how do you think about drawing out your guests? Because you got you have a wide variety. Some of them, many of them, English isn't their first language. 
they're you know either very medically bent like they're not natural communicators and you get them to communicate beautifully I'd, I'd love to know your secrets wow that is a huge compliment and by the way uh i'm being hosted by you right now on this podcast and i find it very enjoyable and i think you're very good at it so um i i think you're not giving yourself enough credit but i will take the very nice compliment um i i think i always have um i think many of us have this anybody who's listening can identify with me I am overly sensitive, sensitive to what other people are feeling. And so as I'm podcasting, I am hundred percent in the, um, listener position, which actually kind of makes it hard to have to like separate two parts of my mind. The one is like still trying to pay attention, like for the content. And the other mm. is like, am I bored or am I confused mm. by what this person is saying? And so if either of those things are true, I just try very hard, especially if like, you know, they're getting way into the weeds on something or they're using a lot of, you know, medical terminology, I will ask them to backtrack like, okay, okay, say we don't know what the CYP450 enzyme does. Can you explain to the listener, you know, because I want it to be super accessible and I don't really know. I mean, there's, I don't know that I have any other tricks depending on the episodes you've, you've listened to. Like if I have these big name researchers on, it is my, you know, is the bare minimum if you're going to research these, let's call them geniuses, you know, but they've dedicated so much work to this. I need to know their work. So I'm going to have looked up their, their um, research projects. I'm going to have taken thorough notes and I'm going to take notes on the things that I think the listener is going to care about the most. You know, I, I never want this to be like what Lynn Marie cares about the most. Every once in a while, you'll hear me say, for, for selfish reasons, I'm asking this question. For the most part, it's like, what is the, in, like, you know, I just want it to be useful. And I know that even like if I'm listening to a podcast, because I want some information and I'm way too bored by the time they get to it, I've tuned out and I didn't get the info, you know? So I just want it to be digestible and to get right to the point. And um, yeah, I, I'm, it's so funny because as you think, call these, I'm like trying to think back to who you're referring to in these, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't know aside from that. I just put myself in the listener's position and try my very darndest mm -hmm. to get them the information in a succinct, understandable format. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I noticed is that, you know, in your introductions and outros, uh, we, when you talk directly to the audience, like I really felt like we were buddies. You didn't you had no idea who I was, but I'm like, I'm you know, you're my friend. I'm your friend. You know, we should hang out. And I'm wondering what kind of, uh, of feedback you've gotten, like what you hear, because podcasting can be a very lonely thing, right? Like after the conversation, you're like, it's you and the editor and the audio and the website and all that stuff. And like, what's, what, what kind of community has, uh, has coalesced around the podcast and, you know, how, how does it feed you? Um, that's really sweet. And we are going to be friends. Uh, I love that the thought that anybody listens to it and just thinks they're my friend though. I will tell you, I was in Berlin and we're, I'm at a psychedelic conference. We have all of our masks on. Right. And, um, uh, this woman, she, you know, we have name tags and like, you know, we were talking in, in the bathroom line and I said, what's your name? And she holds it up and then her name tag. And then I hold up mine and I said, I'm Lynn Marie. And she goes, oh, Morsky. And she's <laughs> like, can I hug you? And it was so cute. Cause like, same thing. She just thought like we were besties because she listened <laughs> to the podcast for so long, you know, and it was like, absolutely made my day. Um, I think it's funny because like at the beginning I used to edit out anytime that I would like make a mistake. And I'm hoping <laughs> that by now I've put out 98 episodes that like, we're friends. You guys know I'm going to make a mistake every once in a while. But like even, you know, you and I on this podcast, right? Like there are probably things I have said to you that other people would have not said. <laughs> I'm just kind of filterless. And I think that's how you can get me like get to know me very quickly without really having to know me very well. It's like there's clearly, you know, I'm just like 
you kind of get the full Lynn Marie at every time. <laughs> so <laughs> right. M- yeah. minus, minus med school and law school, of course. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, you, you, you have these very clear, like, I'm not allowed to say this. I can't go there. Right. But like the full Lynn Marie tells you without being very like, well, let me phrase this gently. I'm like, nope, not answering that. Like, I just, <laughs> I was yeah. like, just kind of unfiltered. But yeah, like, it's really sweet how many people, like when I go into psychedelic conferences, like I had somebody just at the last conference in Miami say, I was going to do ketamine and I listened to all your ketamine um, episodes in exactly like the format that you had it laid out. And I, I got to hear the research and I got, to, and it was, exa- it was as if I'd like somebody had paid her to tell me your plan worked and oh. I did it as you know. And so you're right. There is like a little community. I have not nearly fostered it maybe as much as I could have because I've been busy doing the, the association kind of thing, but it's funny. Every time I want to kind of put the podcast on the back shelf, like somebody else will come out of the woodwork and be like, your podcast has helped me so much learn about these things. And, and then, you know, <laughs> like, I realize that there is, there's a, you know, like uh, there, there is like with your podcast, there's a community out there, whether or not, you know, they exist when they pop their heads up and like weigh in with feedback, it reminds you that like, yeah, we actually are a community and it'd be pretty rad someday to like somehow have a, in-person gathering where we all hang out together. Yeah. Yeah. But your podcast is also, you know, an enduring body of work. Like it's, it's, it, you've, it's like thinking about like writing a book instead of a blog post. Like this is something that people are going to be going back to for, for years as a resource. It's not just, Hey, what a fun conversation. Yeah. And it's my second podcast. My first podcast is on the thing I wrote a book on, which I said was like strategic quitting. And it's funny because that podcast is consistently ranked like number two career podcast in Morocco. And I'm like, well, I'm glad somebody's getting use out of this. They just send me the stats all the time. Uzbekistan's really using that podcast. But but still, I will get people that still email me, you know, like, wow, your podcast helped me quit my job that wasn't working. I'm like, okay, cool. So yeah, I like, I am super stoked that it's going to live in perpetuity. I mean, it, it's not going to be ending anytime soon. It's just going to be morphing to a new name. Um, but yeah, like anybody who is interested in getting just the facts uh, from this girl and not from me personally, but like me having these fantastic other lovely people on, because I continue to say, I am not the expert. I just have experts on and bring them to you. Uh, my only expertise is in knowing what doctors do and do not know about psychedelics. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks for the kind mm-hmm. words about it. And yes, it, it will continue to live on. Excellent. Let's let's close out by talking about what seems to be the, the project closest to your heart right now, the, the Psychedelic Medicine Association. So what's, what's that work? Because I have, I have a lot of listeners who are plant-based doctors in that they tell people to eat plants for their health. Okay. So this is a way maybe they can expand their plant affiliation. Um, <sighs> right, right, right. Well, dear doctors and therapists and nurses and um, Reiki practitioners and acupuncture people and medical students and everybody out there who a patient may go to, this is, this is for you all. Uh, we started the Psychedelic Medicine Association to educate clinicians of all varieties on these medicines. Because if a patient comes to you and says, I'm sad, I'm anxious, I have these uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, symptoms, I'm having difficulty sleeping, I'm having pain, like we know the things that we're currently giving them for most of those things are not that effective and that psychedelics are showing to be very effective, um, but they've been criminalized or stigmatized for so long that we're not taught about them. So even when they are available, like ketamine, your average doctor is not um, prescribing them because one, they may not know about it and two, they may not feel comfortable. So that's the gap we're trying to bridge. Uh, we want the 
people in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota, to be able to go to their family medicine doctor and their family medicine doctor knows that ketamine is an option right right now or that in a few years MDMA is an option Um, because doctors, you know, we have a we're not necessarily that we're so conservative is that we're in a litigious society, especially here in the U.S. And if we do something wrong, we're going to be sued. And that always weighs on us. It's always like hanging over us. And so we have to act more conservatively than we, than we would if that weren't the case. So doctors, even if they hear about this, maybe in the media or whatever, they may still not feel comfortable having that conversation unless they've got a lot more education. And it's going to be a while before these are educated or taught in medical schools or residencies or fellowships or before that drug rep shows up and says, how about MDMA? You know, so we're kind of trying to bridge that gap and educate doctors on that before, I mean, ketamine, like I said, is already there, but before we've got these other drugs that become available, we want clinicians to start getting familiar with so many of the aspects you talked about, like, like super kudos. You asked some amazing questions about talking to clinicians that nobody's asked me before. So give yourself more credit. Um, you're a fantastic podcaster. Um, I, I didn't say I wasn't. I just said I, okay. I, I wanted to up my game. Oh, well, I thought you, I think your game is very high. Um, my <laughs> humble opinion. Uh, because you're right, like clinicians, we've got a lot to go through. Like, okay, we're going to have to totally change what you think about therapy. It might take eight hours and you don't take two of these. Call me in the morning. You take two of these ever. And then you may be cured. Let's hope. Um, these have traditions. These have in- different interactions and all those things we have to talk about with doctors. So if you are a clinician and you would like to learn more about psychedelics or you would like your clinician to learn more about psychedelics, um, head that person over or you head over to psychedelicmedicineassociation.org and join and we send um, every month, we send like five or six of the latest articles in psychedelic science. And then we have a webinar with members only every month, which is the most fun because we get experts from the industry that come on and give in like you can you can interact with like experts that are very hard to get to otherwise. Like a lot of people I've had on the podcast are that, you know, they come and, and they, they sit on these and they will, you know, you can interact with the people who run maps like the, the maps did an all maps panel and people could ask them one on one. How is this rollout going to look? And then maps was asking the doctors for feedback on things like, OK, do you know anybody in your state who could help us with this type of legislation? Like it's the sandbox that we want to create mm. where everybody's helping each other move these forward. It's it's you know, yeah. we've created it, but we've invited everybody in who's not only just, you know, we educate the clinicians on what we can, but all these other experts come. And then, and education is just one part, you know, there are other people in there that are helping move forward research or move forward legislation or move forward accessibility, but everybody can come together there in the association and try to get this whole movement forward more quickly. Mm, that, that sounds great. Cause I have to say that uh, my 21 year old son, 22 now, he will consider me a successful podcaster if I get Rick Doblin on. Oh, let me tell you, that is my uh, next interview. Oh, well, two degrees of separation. I, I, I'm going to let him know. <laughs> yes, it, it took. Yeah, it, it took a while. I wanted him to be my hundredth episode. And uh-huh. luckily, down to the wire, he is going to be my hundredth episode. Oh, I, nice. I just got. Yeah, nice. I just I think about two weeks ago. Um, so with him and he accepted. And so I am extremely excited for that. Yes, absolutely. Um, nice. It's, yeah, it's it's a big honor. He's obviously like a giant in the industry. He's the reason most of us are able to do what we do today. And so I'm very much looking forward to that. All right. And just a, a quick brag on my son. He was uh, two or three years ago, was traveling back to the States from uh, from Colombia, and he recognized Alex Gray in the airport. <gasps> That's very cool. I like every part of that story. Um, <laughs> my favorite Alex Gray story is that uh, at Burning Man in 2009, I was having just a very 
rough week. I had volunteered for Zendo and some overnight shifts had really like taken my energy, just, you know, being like off, you know, having to be up all night, not doing the Burning Man thing and sleeping all day. So I was a little off and I was like, I really need something to kind of cheer me up. And I see that they're going to have like a tool uh, album release party for the band tool. And I go out to it and it's on this giant art car is Alex Gray bringing his uh, seemingly his own copy because, you know, he's done art for tool. He br- like brings with this copy of their brand new, never heard before fear inoculum. It was, and he is rocking out. It is, I have a video of it that I will never, ever delete. It is maybe my favorite video watching Alex Gray rock out to tool at Burning <laughs> man. So tell your son high five. Um, right. <laughs> big Alex well, Gray fan as well. I'll put links to both Alex and Tool in the show notes. Awesome. Um, I want to let you go, but I just want to say I, I don't think I don't think we'll have time to talk about it. But the episode that made me cry was Heroic Hearts. Oh, Jesse. Uh, and yeah. just maybe just say a sentence or two about that. Yeah, uh, it's funny that it's that one. Generally, Mikey's episode makes people cry, and that was the Five uh, Meo DMT one. But listen to Heroic Hearts as well. Jesse Gould is a fam- former former Army Ranger, and he started Heroic Hearts Project after um, experiencing his own healing through ayahuasca. And now he brings veterans down um, to different ayahuasca facilities to help them get that same healing. But you know, Jesse. And Heroic Hearts, as well as Marcus and Amber with Vets, are two veterans organizations that when you hear their story and you hear the stories of how many people they've helped, it will really touch you. And, you know, especially with, you know, they're working with populations that are, it's hard for them to admit they even have a a mental health concern. And they're not used to, you know, giving up complete control to a substance, maybe, and letting over the reins and having some shaman do their thing you know this is a lot of out of you know the realm of of their norm and they're being vulnerable and they're experiencing incredible healing and so many of them feel really compelled to go on and share it with others so yeah listen to the heroic hearts episode that's the ayahuasca patient episode and again another a, a navy seal who did five meo dmt that's the meo uh, five meo dmt patient episode and then um marcus and amber with vets that episode too all of those which will, mm-hmm. will be pretty touching Right. And I remember, you know, like sometimes Leah listened to a podcast and then you can remember like what you were doing, where you were in space when you heard a bit. Yeah. Like when he was, t- I remember I was like doing yard work and I, was, I remember where I was walking when he said, and they were asking me to surrender. And as a, like, I never surrender. And like the courage that came in that statement, which was sort of the, uh, he had been trained to think of the opposite of courage. Surrender is, is, is the opposite of courage like right. that. That just destroyed me. It was so beautiful. <sighs> yeah. I will pass that along to Jesse. That will mean I'm sure a lot to him that, that, that really got to you. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I was saying with like, this is not what they're used to. And it is taking a lot of, you know, for them to, to put their, their mental and physical health in somebody else's hands. But when they come out of it, so many of them are like, I, you know, you've saved my life. And that's what these organizations are trying to, you know, make a dent in this unfortunate veteran suicide epidemic. And so, yeah, it's really an honor to everybody else that, that they're so open and vulnerable with their stories because it's helping a lot of people get healed. Yeah, they're abs- absolutely leaders in a much bigger field than they ever thought they would be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's end with where can people find you? I know you're changing the name of the podcast or, or is it? Yeah, it should be in the same location. I mean, right. You know, by the time you hear this, I don't know when this goes out, but it's, it probably will be called the psychedelic medicine podcast. And that's on Spotify or Apple podcast, Stitcher, any of those places. Um, currently it, it lives at plantmedicine.org. 
And then if you are interested in finding the Psychedelic Medicine Association, that is psychedelicmedicineassociation.org. And like I said, clinicians, we would love to have you join us. Okay. I will put all that in the show notes. And thank you so much. There's, 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 you know, this is such a, like when I look at like everything we know about medicine and healing, and there's so much with promise that is so far out, that's so untested, that's so like, you know, and yet we have this huge body that's, that's ready for us. And all like, what we just have to do is change some hearts and minds and, and create new availabilities. And you are, you know, a leader uh, in, in that movement. And I just, you know, I'm so honored to have spent this hour with you and so grateful for the work you do. Well, very kind. And I really appreciate that acknowledgement. It's uh, I'm happy to have been healed, you know, by these substances. And so it's just my honor to have any role in passing them on to others. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And uh, hope we'll, we'll stay in touch. And one, one, one day we'll, uh, we'll meet at a conference. Sounds fantastic. Thanks again for having me on. A pleasure. All right. Hope you liked that one. If you want to find out more, follow the links to the Psychedelic Medicine Podcast or the Psychedelic Medicine Association. You can do so over at the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 499. So Garden did a new bed. Uh, I was uh, out dumpster diving for cardboard. One thing I've learned in years of dumpster diving cardboard and putting it in the garden is remove all the plastic tape first. Otherwise, you're going to find plastic tape coming out after the rain. It's like a the hand, you know, in the cemetery of the horror movie, just seeing this plastic bubbling up. And we don't want that. So I remove it all first in the driveway, then put the, pla- the cardboard down, and then I put some loads of compost and mulch on top of that. And so hopefully by the by uh, next fall, we will have another bed ready to go. So a lot of my movement news this week has been gardening, schlepping, compost, mulch, wood chips, uh, went for a little bit of a run the other day and played hard ultimate on Saturday. It was cold, not that many people showed up. So we were playing what's called savage six on six. Savage in the ultimate world means no subs. Um, so still recovering from that a little bit. Um, yesterday, I managed to get a decent kettlebell workout. Um, one of the things I like doing is short kettlebell workouts, more intense. Like if it's just 10 minutes, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go do it. But if it seems like 30 to 40 minutes, I can easily talk myself out of that. So uh, the exercise was um, 15 seconds of work, 15 seconds of rest, alternating between um, squats and swings. And it sure wore me out. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franza, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, 
Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gullage, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 